When I was a kid, I backdoored my way into Jesus. And this is what it sounds like or what happened. I grew up in the church, went to church. My mom taught me about Christ. The Sunday school, Mrs. Hibner, she beat Jesus into me. And um, she pinched my cheeks and she made sure that I heard about Jesus. That's why my cheeks are red today. I began to question, probably like a lot of people, do I believe simply because my mom believed? Do I believe because this is the church I went to? If I went to a Mormon church, would I would believe the Mormon doctrine? If I went to a Baha'i church, would I believe in the Baha'i doctrine? And it kind of troubled me. I was like, you know, am I just a Christian by default? So I began to look and, 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 and I didn't explore and attend other churches. I did a couple, but I began to just kind of read and, uh, I love to read and I was just looking at various perspectives. And one of the things that I observed, probably if you did this, you would observe the same thing. Is that no matter what religion you look at, they all deal with Jesus. Every one of them. They have some view of Christ. He's the uh, a son of God, a brother to Lucifer, or he is uh, a created being who received the divine spirit of God. They all have this view, and it struck me as a kid, there's something about Christ that is so central that every religion in the world has to deal with him. Uh, even my pagan friends cussed in the name of Jesus. They never said, oh, Buddha. (laughs) They didn't say, Joseph Smith, you, I better stop or I'm going to say something I regret. (laughs) They, they, They cursed. And it sounds weird, but as a, as a kid, I knew there's something unique about Jesus. Or every faith wouldn't deal with him, twist him, have some view of him. So I began to look. John was writing to a group of people that had the same kind of issue. They, they had an orthodox view of Jesus. What, what was orthodoxy? Orthodoxy is the traditional historical belief of the church. Now for John's writers, what was the orthodox perspective? Well, it was the perspective that Christ gave us. And yet people were twisting it. What were they doing? One of the things that was happening in John's day is that they said that Jesus was a created human being, a man just like you, but that received a divine spirit of God. Implications, pretty significant. Number one, the flesh is evil, the spirit is good. Number two, it really doesn't matter what you do in the flesh as long as your spirit is good. I grew up with a kid like that. His name was Blake. Blake kind of taught me. He said, you sin like the devil on Friday. As long as you confess it on Sunday, you're all good. I thought, man, this is, I like your religion. Sin, go to heaven. Woo, that's awesome. As a 16-year-old kid trying to get out of, you know, obligatory issues of sin, that was a pretty good world. John came along and he said, my friends, there's a lot at stake. Whatever you do with Jesus is going to be critical. Because the implications of what you do with Christ is going to affect you and everything else for eternity. And so John comes to them and he wants to kind of, if you will, square them up. John's a straight shooter. And he says to them, as it's listed here in chapter 2, verse 22, who's the liar? What's a liar? It's a person who twists the truth. You can twist the truth by taking truth and twisting it. You can actually twist the truth by withholding critical information. 
What they were doing is they were taking Jesus and augmenting his person. And John comes to them and he says, who's the liar? Who's the one who's twisting the truth? And he says, very simply, it is the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? He's saying that the person who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one sent by God to redeem people, the one sent by God with the qualifications and capability of saving people, the person who twists that is a liar. The person who tells you, it doesn't really matter what you believe, God will save you. It's a liar. The person who says Jesus is not really God he's a fleshly being that received the spirit of God. John says he's a liar. Now, why is that important? Three reasons. Number one is if Jesus is not the Messiah, then we really don't have any idea what God is like. And the reason is, is because through Jesus, God shows us who he is. If you're to take a poll in the United States today, you're going to find that well over 90% of people believe in God. You could go out to your neighborhood, throw a rock in any direction. You're probably going to find a person who says, yeah, I believe in a higher power. I believe in somebody that that is, you know, bigger than me. I believe in somebody that's more powerful than me. I mean, I'm smart enough to, to understand that the eye and the brain alone doesn't come about by accident. I get that. But after that point, we have no real alignment. And so what John is saying is, is you're a liar if what? You don't believe that when you see Jesus, you see God. That's what it means to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent by God who is here to reveal him. N.T. Wright makes this statement, and I love this. He says, Jesus provides us exegesis of God. You want to discover who God is, you look at Jesus. Dare to shape your vision of God around the person of Christ, Jesus. Jesus one time said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said in another location in John chapter 10, he said, I and the Father are one. I have three sons. Frequently, somebody will call one of them and they'll answer the phone and they'll mistake and they'll think one of my sons is me. And my sons have periodically tried to get away with that and it doesn't go very far. But the reality is, it's true, we, have, we share very, very similar values. We have a, one of our highest values that we've talked about is loyalty. There's, you could go and you could, man, cut us open and our values are very similar. But be, don't be mistaken. When you see them, you're not really seeing me. You may see characteristics of me. Some of them look like me. Uh, we, we laugh at some, you know, some means in the same thing, uh, the same stuff and we sound very similar. But no one would say, oh, if I've seen you, I've seen your dad. Because the reality is, ontologically, we're not the same. We share in the same DNA, but the fact is, if you were to, you know, kind of examine us at any fundamental level of our blood type and beyond, we're not the same. So when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he's making a statement that no one else has ever made. 
When he says, I and the Father are one, my sons and I, we share very similar values. But we're not the same essence. And that's what Christ is saying. And because of that, we can make deductions completely about what God is like. I know that God is sympathetic because the scripture says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who is able to sympathize with us. Why? Because he's faced every challenge that you faced. We don't have a a God who's indifferent to us. Uh, We have a God who's very personally engaged with us. He's involved in us. In fact, he says that I'm Emmanuel. I'm God with you. I've come after you. We, We don't have a God that plays hard to get. And that's a really significant issue when you're praying for God's will and you want guidance. If you believe that God somehow plays games and is indifferent and kind of sits out there and kind of plays the coy game with you, then my friends, uh, to be quite honest with you, you'll probably quit praying. Because that kind of God, I'm not sure I'd have time for. But Jesus tells us what God is like and he's interested in you. He inclines his ear to you. He takes personal interest in every aspect of your life. How do I know that? Because through Jesus, I know what God is like. And through Jesus, I understand that God invites us to be with him. He's the Messiah, the deliverer, the one who provides salvation. We have a problem. The problem says that all of us have sinned. That's what the Bible says. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a huge difference between me and God. The capacity of an unholy person like myself coming into the presence of God has the likelihood of taking me and landing me on the sun and living. Now, I understand that you you couldn't even get me close to the sun, but let's imagine for a moment you could, and you could drop me onto the sun. Can you even fathom how long it would take until I'm incinerated and do not even exist? It's not even a second. It's less time to take an unholy person and to put them into the presence of a holy God. Why? Because God is holy. He's just. And by the way, you don't want him to give that up. It creates a problem for us because how do you get a a unholy person in relationship with a holy God? But some people today, love wins and people who are writing about that kind of stuff suggest that God will disband. He will reject. He will put aside his holiness. You don't want him to do that any more than I want a judge to put aside his passion for justice. Any more than I want you to give up on holiness and justice. You see, when you hear about a story of a little 11-year-old boy who is going to work in a concentration camp or some place, some kind of, some camp where they abuse those kids, and you hear that story, you don't say, oh, well, tough being an 11-year-old in northern China. 
It's not how you respond. When you hear about a young 13-year-old girl that's been trafficked for three years coming out of Bangkok and you hear about that and you see her and she tells your story, nobody says, well, bummer, I wish you were my daughter. It would have been different. You don't think that way. Why? Because there's a sense of justice inside of you. And when you hear about the Uyghurs in northern China and you understand that they're going to slave camps and they're producing certain things that we sell in the United States, when you find out about it, you don't go there and shop. Why? Because everything that they're making and every dime that they're making is because there's children that they abuse. You don't want to give that up. You don't become indifferent to justice if you do. You're some cold-hearted person that would put your personal economic position over the life of a child. You don't want God to give up on his justice. You don't want him to become indifferent to sin. You don't want him to look at a 13-year-old girl and say, well, bummer, wish you were born in another country. But that holiness causes a problem. And so God has to find a way. How do I get unholy people in relationship with the holy God? Because it's harder to do that than to get Mark and land him on the sun. The scriptures, one of my favorite passages in Colossians chapter 1 says this. Once you were alienated, you were an enemy from God. You were hostile in your minds because of your evil deeds. Every one of us could probably identify with that. But God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Notice what Paul is saying here. The physical body is critical. It's critical, John is saying, that Christ came in the flesh, that he lived. Why? Because sin entered through one man. And the ecosystem had sin enter into it. And the only way you're going to redeem it is to redeem it in the body. We lost it in the garden. Christ fought for it in the desert. He won it on the cross. Because he says he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, unblemished, blameless in his presence. There's something really critical, John says. You lie about Christ and you're going to give up something big. And that is the ability to be reconciled with God. If Christ is merely a spirit, and he's not perfection in the flesh, but he's merely a spirit, then you're going to have a problem redeeming the flesh, and you and I are flesh. And so John says, you can't afford to be a liar on this one, because your eternal life is contingent upon your belief that Christ is the Messiah. Third, John tells us that through Jesus, God will make the world right again. See, what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. And if it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised, eternal life. You get to live forever. Here's the problem. The world is dying. I understand that when you go over to 
Silver Creek Falls and uh, you can go over there and you're going to see some of the most beautiful falls and you, I can just sit there and watch the water fall down all day long and I go to the ocean and man, I'll tell you what, I go to the ocean, I'm always marveled, I don't know why, I just marvel that it stops. I marvel that God has created this world that works so well. I go up to the mountains. One of my favorite things to do is to go up to the mountains. I've always been enamored by stars. I like to get away from the city where all the lights aren't bothering me. And you get up there and you look. And I have this little app on my phone. I'm kind of geeky about it because I get this thing out. And I don't. I can't really recognize most constellations. I can find the Big Dipper. I can find the Little Dipper. But beyond that, I need this app. And I hold that thing up there and I can see all these constellations. I pull it away and I'm like, I have no idea how they see that. <laughs> but I marvel at that. I do. I marvel what the scripture says that God created every one of those stars and he named every one of them. I wonder why God had to name. I mean, man, sometimes I can't even remember my kids' names. I start going through, I call them the dog's names, throwing a few horses. And then I finally get to my son. (laughs) Praise God, I don't have a mule. (laughs) You get what I'm saying? (laughs) Stop there. Let's not go too much further. (laughs) But when I look at those stars, I think, God, why? Why'd you name them all? How impressive. But on the way home from the mountain... I come by an ambulance and I realize that the world is beautiful, but it's broken. If you go out my driveway and across the street and you're driving north, you're going to see three crosses on the left side of the road. Three kids didn't make it home because the world is broken. Romans chapter 8 verses 20 and following about four or five verses tells us this, that the world is groaning. And I don't care how many electric cars you drive, you're not going to stop this world from dying. I'm not a fatalist. I'm not. And I don't throw my plastic bottles in the ditch. And I recycle. And I minimize my driving, especially when diesel is $6.39 a gallon. But the fact is, the Bible, and I believe it, was cursed when sin entered into this world. And God says it's groaning and it's going to die. And no matter how much we try and preserve it, its bent is towards what? Death. That's what he said to Adam. You eat of this, Eve, you eat of this, you're going to die. But not just you, not just humans. Look at Romans 8, 20 and following. The earth is dying. It's groaning. John comes along and says that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the one who lived in the flesh, died in the flesh, and was raised to life in the flesh. What's the implication? It's very significant. God is going to redeem the earth. He's going to take that which is bent towards death The scripture says, and bring life into it and create a new heaven and a new earth. And if Christ isn't God in the flesh, John's implication is this. Then you're going to ride this thing out until planet earth dies. And your only hope is that it's your grandkids and not you. If you're that selfish. 
because it's dying. I don't have a problem talking about global warming or anything else. I, I don't. It's not my point. My point is if I believe the scriptures, sin entered into this world and it's groaning and it's dying. But the hope comes to me. He's promised you eternal life. Jesus says in John 14, I will go and prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you will be also. I am going to create something that is new. Something that is eternal. Lasts forever. You and I are walking every day on a planet that's not going to last forever. You need a new one. Just like you need an eternal body. If you want to live with Christ forever. John says this, my friends. Through Jesus... God is going to make the world right again. And that gives me hope. Interestingly enough, in this text, as much as he is, if you will, defending the nature of Christ, he's also giving you an assignment. Verse 20, he says, but you have an anointing. What's an anointing? You, you have a calling from the Holy One. You have a purpose. What is it? It's to speak the truth. Through Jesus, yes, God is going to make the world right again. But you were chosen to help people see the beauty of Christ. I don't know if you've ever been lost. I mean lost, lost. Not like, eh, I'm not sure where I'm at, but I know if I walk that way, I'm going to run into a river. That's not lost. That's just inconvenienced. I'm talking about it's 5 o'clock at night. The sun is set, it's snowing like crazy, and you have no idea how to get out. Lost, lost. The kind of lost that unless you're a MacGyver type, and for those of you who are younger, look that up on Google, <laughs> who I just referred to, because you're too young. But if you're, if you're that kind where so you can survive anything great, but, but let's imagine for a moment that you're really lost. And you're out there and you realize and the panic starts to set in. We aren't prepared. We have no idea how to get out of here. The snow is coming and we're going to die. What happens when you have six or seven people who come to grips with the fact that they're going to die and be frozen in a bank found when the spring comes and it thaws out? They go crazy and panic and selfish and they start accusing and they start blaming. But imagine in this horrible moment that somebody walks around a corner of some tree and it has a light, it's a flashlight, and they come into your presence and you realize it's a friend of yours and she's a ranger. And you know this person, you know not only her character, but you know her skill. And the fact is that she knows these mountains better than you know your backyard. And in the minute you see her, the second you see her, what happens? Your heart slows down. Hope comes back into you. You imagine that night you're going to be in a bed, not in a bank of snow dying. And she comes and she says, you guys want to live? Yes, that's good. Come, come with me. I know the way out. 
But as you're walking, somebody begins to murmur in the back. Does she really know what she's doing? She doesn't look like she's this smart. She doesn't look like, and they start kind of spreading these rumors. And you're up there at the front and you know the character of this person and you know the skill of this person and you know that to follow her means to live. What would you do with that person in the back? If you were me, you would probably walk back there and say, hey, wait a minute, look me in the eye. I know her and I know her skill and I know that she's the way out of this place. If you want to hang around here and figure your own boat out of this place, feel free. But don't take the rest of us down with you. We're following her because we want to live. See, John, that's his point in this text. If you know the truth, then you're not going to depart from the truth. But if you know the truth, you got to own up to your assignment. And what is it? You have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. You have to be the most selfish individual to disregard a person and say, you know, I'm afraid that they're going to reject me. I'm afraid they're not going to like me. If you believe that Christ is the Messiah, then you have an obligation just like me to pray for them. And as God gives you the ability to help them see the beauty of Christ. That's our privilege. That's our assignment. This last week, 200 of you said yes to that assignment. You partnered together. We invited the city to come. God has called us to be a church for the city, to serve its needs, to love it, to tell it about the beauty of Christ. Our children's ministry director and a whole lot of other people worked together and invited a bunch of kids. About 550 came. 200 of them had no connection to a local church. 200 of them have never been told about the beauty of Jesus. And when we're a church for the city, we own the fact that God has said to us, like he said through John, you have an anointing from the Holy One, a calling, an assignment. What is it? To tell people about the beauty of Christ. Why? Because they're lost. And you know the way out. And you know the person who died for you. And you know the one who rose from the dead. I want to prepare you. You're about to experience one of the most incredible feelings of joy. That you get to be a part of a church. And I say to you 200 who gave and took time off vacation and took time off from work to invest, only eternity will bear witness to the glory of what God did this week.